Chapter Nine of *The Man from Glengarry*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bruce Peary. *The Man from Glengarry: A Tale of the Ottawa* by Ralph Connor. Chapter Nine: A Sabbath Day's Work. The Sabbath that followed the sugaring off was to Mamie the most remarkable Sabbath of her life up to that day. It was totally unlike the Sabbath of her home which after the formal church parade, as Harry called it, in the morning, her father spent in lounging with his magazine and pipe, her aunt in sleeping or in social gossip with such friends as might drop in, and Harry and Mamie as best they could. The Sabbath in the minister's house, as in the homes of his people, was a day so set apart from other days that it had to be approached the saturday afternoon and evening caught something of its atmosphere no frivolity indeed no light amusement was proper on the evening that put a period to the worldly occupations and engagements of the week that evening was one of preparation the house and especially the kitchen was thoroughly read up wood water and kindlings were brought in clothes were brushed boots greased or polished dinner prepared and in every way possible the whole house its dwellers and its belongings made ready for the morrow so when the sabbath morning dawned people awoke with a feeling that old things had passed away and that the whole world was new the sun shone with a radiance not known on other days he was shining upon holy things and lighting men and women to holy duties. Through all the farms the fields lay bathed in his genial glow, at rest, and the very trees stood in silent worship of the bending heavens. Up from stable and from kitchen came no sounds of work. The horses knew that no wheel would turn that day in labor, and the dogs lay sleeping in sunny nooks knowing as well as any that there was to be no hunting or roaming for them that day unless they chose to go on a free hunt which none but light-headed puppies or dissipated and reprobate dogs would care to do over all things rest brooded and out of the rest grew holy thoughts and hopes it was a day of beginnings for the past broken and stained there was a new offer of oblivion and healing, and the heart was summoned to look forward to new life and to hope for better things, and to drink in all those soothing healing influences that memory and faith combine to give, so that when the day was done, weary and discouraged men and women began to feel that, perhaps after all, they might be able to endure and even to hope for victory. The minister rose earlier on Sabbath than on other days, the responsibility of his office pressing hard upon him. Breakfast was more silent than usual, ordinary subjects of conversation being discouraged. The minister was preoccupied and impatient of any interruption of his thoughts. But his wife came to the table with a sweeter serenity than usual and a calm upon her face that told of hidden strength. Even Mamie could notice the difference, but she could only wonder. The secret of it was hidden from her. 
Her aunt was like no other woman that she knew, and there were many things about her too deep for Mamie's understanding. After worship, which was brief but solemn and intense, Lambert hurried to bring round to the front the big black horse, hitched up in the carryall, and they all made speed to pack themselves in, Mamie and her aunt in front, and Hughie on the floor behind with his legs under the seat, for when once the minister was himself quite ready, and had got his great meerschaum pipe going, it was unsafe for anyone to delay him a single instant. The drive to the church was an experience hardly in keeping with the spirit of the day. It was more exciting than restful. Black was a horse with a single aim, which was to devour the space that stretched out before him with a fine disregard of consequence. The first part of the road, up to the church hill and down again to the swamp, was to Black, as to the others, an unmixed joy, for he was fresh from his oats and eager to go, and his driver was as eager to let him have his will. But when the swamp was reached and the buggy began to leap from log to log of the corduroy, Black began to chafe in impatience of the rain which commanded caution. Indeed, the passage of the swamp was always more or less of an adventure, the result of which no one could foretell, and it took all Mrs. Murray's steadiness of nerve to repress an exclamation of terror at critical moments. The corduroy was Black's abomination. He longed to dash through and be done with it, but however much the minister sympathized with Black's desire, prudence forbade that his method should be adopted. So from log to log and from hole to hole, Black plunged and stepped with all the care he could be persuaded to exercise. Every lurch of the carryall bringing a scream from Mamie in front, and a delighted chuckle from Hughie behind. His delight in the adventure was materially increased by his cousin's terror. But once the swamp was crossed, and Black found himself on the firm road that wound over the sand hills and through the open pine woods, he tossed his great mane back from his eyes, and, getting his head, set off at a pace that foreboded disaster to anything trying to keep before him, and in a short time drew up at the church gates, his flanks steaming and his great chest white with foam. "'My!' said Mamie, when she had recovered her breath sufficiently to speak. "'Is that the church?' She pointed to a huge wooden building about whose door a group of men were standing. "'Uh-huh, that's it.' said Hughie, but we will soon be done with the ugly old thing. The most enthusiastic member of the congregation could scarcely call the old church beautiful, and to Mamie's eyes it was positively hideous. No steeple or tower gave any hint of its sacred character. Its weather-beaten clapboard exterior, spotted with black knots, as if stricken with some disfiguring disease, had nothing but its row of uncurtained windows to distinguish it from an ordinary barn. They entered by the door at the end of the church and proceeded down the long aisle that ran the full length of the building, till they came to a cross aisle that led them to the minister's pew at the left side of the pulpit, and commanding a view of the whole congregation. 
the main body of the church was seated with long box pews with hinged doors but the gallery that ran round three sides was fitted with simple benches immediately in front of the pulpit was a square pew which was set apart for the use of the elders and close up to the pulpit and indeed as part of this structure was a precentor's desk the pulpit was to mamie's eyes a wonder it was an octagonal box placed high on one side of the church on a level with the gallery and reached by a spiral staircase above it hung the highly ornate and altogether extraordinary sounding-board and canopy there was no sign of paint anywhere but the yellow pine of which seats gallery and pulpit were all made had deepened with age into a rich brown not unpleasant to the eye the church was full for the indian lands people believed in going to church and there was not a house for many miles around but was represented in the church that day there they sat row upon row of men brawny and brown with wind and sun a notable company worthy of their ancestry and worthy of their heritage beside them sat their wives brown too and weather-beaten but strong deep-bosomed and with faces of calm content worthy to be mothers of their husbands sons the girls and younger children sat with their parents modest shy and reverend but the young men for the most part filled the back seats under the gallery and a hardy lot they were as brown and brawny as their fathers but tingling with life to their finger-tips ready for anything and impossible of control except by one whom they feared as well as reverenced and such a man was alexander murray for they knew well that lithe and brawny as they were there was not a man of them but he could fling out of the door and over the fence if he so wished and they knew too that he would be prompt to do it if occasion arose hence they waited for the word of god with all due reverence and fear in the square pew in front of the pulpit sat the elders hoary massive and venerable the indian lands session were worth seeing great men they were every one of them excepting perhaps kenneth campbell kenny crubach as he was called from his halting step kenny was neither hoary nor massive nor venerable he was a short grizzled man with snapping black eyes and a tongue for clever biting speech and while he bore a stainless character no one thought of him as an eminently godly man in public prayer he never attained any great length nor did he employ that tone of unction deemed suitable in this sacred exercise he seldom spoke to the question but when he did people leaned forward to listen and more especially the rows of the careless and ungodly under the gallery kenny had not the look of an elder and indeed many wondered how he had ever come to be chosen for the office but the others all had the look of elders and carried with them the full respect and affection of the congregation even the young men under the gallery regarded them with reverence for their godly character but for other things as well 
for these old men had been famous in their day and tales were still told about the firesides of the people of their prowess in the woods and on the river there was for instance finley mcewen or mcewen as they all pronounced it in that country who for a wager had carried a four hundred pound barrel upon each hip across the long bridge over the scotch river and next him sat donald ross whose very face with its halo of white hair bore benediction with it wherever he went what a man he must have been in his day six feet four inches he stood in his stocking soles and with a back like a barn door as his son Danny or Curly, now in the shanty with MacDonald Vane, used to say in affectionate pride. Then there was Farquhar McNaughton, big, kindly, and good-natured, a mighty man with the axe in his time. Kirsty's Farquhar, they called him, for obvious reasons. And a good thing for Farquhar it was that he had had Kirsty at his side during these years to make his bargains for him and to keep him and all others to them else he would never have become the substantial man he was next to farquhar was peter mcrae the chief of a large clan of respectable and none too respectable families whom all alike held in fear for peter ruled with a rod of iron and his word ran as law throughout the clan then there was Ian Moore MacGregor, or Big John MacGregor, as the younger generation called him, almost as big as Donald Ross and quite as kindly, but with a darker, sadder face. Something from his wilder youth had cast its shadow over his life. No one but his minister and two others knew that story, but the old man knew it himself, and that was enough one of those who shared his secret was his neighbor and crony donald ross and it was worth a journey of some length to see these two great men one with the sad and the other with the sunny face stride off together staff in hand at the close of the gaelic service to donald's home where the afternoon would be spent in discourse fitting the lord's day and in prayer the only other elder was roderick mcquaig who sat not in the elder's pew but in the precentor's box for he was the leader of psalmody straight rory as he was called by the irreverent was tall spare and straight as a ramrod he was devoted to his office jealous of its dignity and strenuous in his opposition to all innovations in connection with the service of praise he was especially opposed to the introduction of those new-fangled ranting tunes which were being taught the young people by john alec fraser in the weekly singing school in the nineteenth and which were sung at mrs murray's sabbath evening bible class in the little church straight rory had been educated for a teacher in scotland and was something of a scholar he loved school examinations where he was the terror of pupils and teachers alike his acute mind reveled in the metaphysics of theology which made him the dread of all candidates who appeared before the session desiring to come forward it was to many an impressive sight to see straight rory rise in the precentor's box 
feel round with much facial contortion for the pitch he despised a tuning fork and then straightening himself up till he bent over backwards raise the chant that introduced the tune to the congregation but to the young men under the gallery he was more humorous than impressive and it is to be feared that they waited for the precentor's weekly performance with a delighted expectation that never flagged and that was never disappointed it was only the flash of the minister's blue eye that held their faces rigid in preternatural solemnity and forced them to content themselves with winks and nudges for the expression of their delight as Mamie's eye went wandering shyly over the rows of brown faces that turned in solemn and steadfast regard to the minister's pew, Hughie nudged her and whispered, There's Don, see, in the back seat by the window, next to Peter Ruach, yonder, the red-headed fellow. He pointed to Peter McRae, grandson of Peter the Elder. There was no mistaking that landmark. Look! cried Hughie eagerly, pointing with terrible directness straight at Don, to Mamie's confusion. Whisht, Hughie, said his mother softly. There's Ranald, mother, said the diplomatic Hughie, knowing well that his mother would rejoice to hear that bit of news. See, mother, just in front of Don, there. Again Hughie's terrible finger pointed straight into the face of the gazing congregation. Hush, Hughie, said his mother severely. Mamie knew a hundred eyes were looking straight at the minister's pew, but for the life of her she could not prevent her eye following the pointing finger till it found the steady gaze of Ranald fastened upon her. It was only for a moment, but in that moment she felt her heart jump and her face grow hot, and it did not help her that she knew that the people were all wondering at her furious blushes. Of course, the story of the sugaring off had gone the length of the land and had formed the subject of conversation at the church door that morning, where Ranald had to bear a good deal of chaff about the young lady and her dislike of forfeits, till he was ready to fight if a chance should but offer. With unspeakable rage and confusion, he noticed Hughie's pointing finger. He caught, too, Mamie's quick look with the vivid blush that followed unfortunately others besides himself had noticed this and don and peter ruach in the seat behind him made it the subject of congratulatory remarks to ranald at this point the minister rose in the pulpit and all waited with earnest and reverend mien for the announcing of the psalm the reverend alexander murray was a man to be regarded in any company and under any circumstances but when he stood up in his pulpit and faced his congregation, he was truly superb. He was above the average height, of faultless form and bearing, athletic, active, and with a spring in every muscle. He had coal-black hair and beard, and a flashing blue eye that held his people in utter subjection and put the fear of death upon evil-doers under the gallery. In every movement, tone, and glance there breathed imperial command. Let us worship God by singing to his praise in the one hundred and twenty-first psalm. I to the hills will lift mine eyes, from whence doth come mine aid. 
His voice rang out o'er the congregation like a silver bell, and Mamie thought she had never seen a man of such noble presence. After the reading of the psalm, the minister sat down, and straight Rory rose in his box, and, after his manner, began feeling about for the first note of the chant that would introduce the noble old tune St. Paul's. A few moments he spent twisting his face and shoulders in a manner that threatened to ruin the solemnity of the worshippers under the gallery, till finally he seemed to hit upon the pitch desired, and throwing back his head and closing one eye, he proceeded on his way. Each line he chanted alone after the ancient Scottish custom, after which the congregation joined with him in the tune. The custom survived from the time when psalm-books were in the hands of but few, and the lining of the psalm was therefore necessary. There was no haste to be done with the psalm. Why should there be? They had only one Sabbath in the week, and the whole day was before them. The people surrendered themselves to the lead of Straight Rory with unmistakable delight in that part of the exercises of the day in which they were permitted to audibly join. But of all the congregation none enjoyed the singing more than the dear old women who sat in the front seats near the pulpit, their quiet old faces looking so sweet and pure under their snow-white mutches. There they sat and sang and quavered, swaying their bodies with the tune in an ecstasy of restful joy. Mimi had often heard St. Paul's before, but never as it was chanted by straight Rory and sung by the Indian Lands congregation that day. The extraordinary slides and slurs almost obliterated the notes of the original tune, and the little kick, as Mimi called it, at the end of the second line gave her a little start. Auntie, she whispered, isn't it awfully queer? Isn't it beautiful? her aunt answered with an uncertain smile. She was remembering how these winding, sliding, slurring old tunes had affected her when first she heard them in her husband's church years ago. The stately movement, the weird quavers, and the pathetic cadences had in some mysterious way reached the deep places in her heart, and before she knew she had found the tears coursing down her cheeks and her breath catching in sobs. Indeed, as she listened to-day, remembering these old impressions, the tears began to flow, till Hughie, not understanding, crept over to his mother and, to comfort her, slipped his hand into hers, looking fiercely at Mamie as if she were to blame. Mamie, too, noticed the tears and sat wondering, and as the congregation swung on through the verses of the grand old psalm, there crept into her heart a new and deeper emotion than she had ever known. "'Listen to the words, Mamie, dear,' whispered her aunt. And as Mamie listened, the noble words, borne on the mighty swing of St. Paul's, lifted up by six hundred voices, for men, women, and children were singing with all their hearts, awakened echoes from great deeps within her as yet unsounded. The days for such singing are, alas, long gone. The noble rhythm, the stately movement, 
the continuous curving stream of melody that once marked the praise service of the old scottish church have given place to the light staccato tinkle of the revival chorus or the shorn and mutilated skeleton of the ancient psalm tune but while the psalm had been moving on in its solemn and stately way ranald had been enduring agony at the hands of peter ruach sitting just behind him peter whose huge clumsy body was a fitting tabernacle for the soul within labored under the impression that he was a humorist and indulged a habit of ponderous joking trying enough to most people but to one of ranald's temperament exasperating to a high degree his theme was ranald's rescue of mamie and the pauses of the singing he filled in with humorous comments that outside would have produced only weariness but in the church owing to the strange perversity of human nature sent a snicker along the seat unfortunately for him ranald's face was so turned that he could not see it and so he had no hint of the wrath that was steadily boiling up to the point of overflow they were nearing the close of the last verse of the psalm when hughie whose eyes never wandered long from ranald's direction uttered a sharp oh my there was a shuffling confusion under the gallery and when mamie and her aunt looked peter ruach's place was vacant by this time the minister was standing up for prayer his eye too caught the movement in the back seat young men he said sternly remember you are in god's house let me not have to mention your names before the congregation let us pray as the congregation rose for prayer mrs murray noticed peter ruach appear from beneath the book-board and quietly slip out by the back door with his hand to his face and the blood streaming between his fingers and though ranald was standing up straight and stiff in his place mrs murray could read from his rigid look the explanation of peter's bloody face she gave her mind to the prayer with a sore heart for she had learned enough of those wild hot-headed youths to know that before peter ruach's face would be healed more blood would have to flow the prayer proceeded in its leisurely way indulging here and there in quiet reverie or in exultant jubilation over the attributes embracing in its world-wide sweep the interests of the kingdom far and near and of that part of humanity included therein present and to come and buttressing its petitions with theological argument systematic and unassailable before the close however the minister came to deal with the needs of his own people old and young absent and present the sick the weary the sin burdened all were remembered with a warmth of sympathy with a directness of petition and with an earnestness of appeal that thrilled and subdued the hearts of all and made even the boys who had borne with difficulty the last half-hour of the long prayer forget their weariness the reading of scripture followed the prayer in this the minister excelled his fine voice and his dramatic instinct combined to make this an impressive and beautiful portion of the service but to-day much of the beauty and impressiveness of the reading was lost by the frequent interruptions caused by the entrance of late-comers 
of whom, owing to the bad roads, there were a larger number than usual. The minister was evidently annoyed, not so much by the opening and shutting of the door, as by the inattention of his hearers, who kept turning round their heads to see who the new arrivals were. At length the minister could bear it no longer. "'My dear people,' he said, pausing in the reading, "'never mind those coming in. Give you heed to the reading of God's word, and if you must know who are entering, I will tell you. Yes,' he added deliberately, "'give you heed to me, and I will let you know who these late-comers are.' With that startling declaration he proceeded with the reading, but had not gone more than a few verses when click went the door-latch. Not a head turned." It was Malcolm Monroe, slow-going and good-natured, with his quiet little wife following him. The minister paused, looking toward the door, and announced, "'My dear people, here comes our friend Malcolm Monroe and his good wife with him, and a long walk they have had. Come away, Malcolm, come away, we will just wait for you.' Malcolm's face was a picture. Surprise, astonishment, and confusion followed each other across his stolid countenance, and with quicker pace than he was ever known to use in his life before, he made his way to his seat. No sooner had the reading began again when once more the door clicked. True to his promise, the minister paused and cheerfully announced to his people, This, my friends, is John Campbell, whom you all know as Johnny Sarah, and we are very glad to see him for indeed he has not been here for some time. Come away, John, come away, man, he added impatiently, for we are all waiting for you. Johnny Sarah stood paralyzed with amazement and seemed uncertain whether to advance or to turn and flee. The minister's impatient command, however, decided him, and he dropped into the nearest seat with all speed, and gazed about him as if to discover where he was. He had no sooner taken his seat than the door opened again, and some half-dozen people entered. The minister stood looking at them for some moments, and then said, in a voice of resignation, "'Friends, these are some of our people from the island, and there are some strangers with them. But if you want to know who they are, you will just have to look at them yourselves, for I must get on with the reading.' Needless to say, not a soul of the congregation, however consumed with curiosity, dared to look around, and the reading of the chapter went gravely on to the close. To say that Mamie sat in utter astonishment during this extraordinary proceeding would give but a faint idea of her state of mind. Even Mrs. Murray herself, who had become accustomed to her husband's eccentricities, sat in a state of utter bewilderment not knowing what might happen next, nor did she feel quite safe until the text was announced and the sermon fairly begun. Important as were the exercises of reading, praise, and prayer, they were only the opening services, and merely led up to the event of the day, which was the sermon. And it was the event not only of the day, but of the week. It would form the theme of conversation and afford food for discussion in every gathering of the people until another came to take its place. Today it lasted a full hour and a half, and was an extraordinary production. Calm, deliberate reasoning, flights of vivid imagination, passionate denunciation, and fervid appeal marked its course. Its subject was the great doctrine of justification by faith, 
and it contained a complete system of theology arranged with reference to that doctrine ancient heresies were attacked and exposed with completeness amounting to annihilation modern errors into which our friends of the different denominations had fallen were deplored and corrected and all possible misapplications of the doctrine to practical life guarded against on the positive side the need the ground the means the method the agent the results of justification were fully set forth and illustrated there were no anecdotes and no poetry the subject was much too massive and tremendous to permit of any such trifling as the sermon rolled on its majestic course the congregation listened with an attentive and discriminating appreciation that testified to their earnestness and intelligence true one here and there dropped into a momentary doze but his slumber was never easy for he was harassed by the terrible fear of a sudden summons by name from the pulpit to awake and give heed to the message which for the next few minutes would have an application so personal and pungent that it would effectually prevent sleep for that and some successive sabbaths the only apparent lapse of attention occurred when donald ross opened his horn snuff-box and after tapping solemnly upon its lid drew forth a huge pinch of snuff and passed it to his neighbor who after helping himself in like manner passed the box on that the lapse was only apparent was made evident by the air of abstraction with which this operation was carried on the snuff being held between the thumb and forefinger for some moments until a suitable resting-place in the sermon was reached when the minister had arrived at the middle of the second head he made the discovery as was not frequently the case that the remotest limits of the allotted time had been passed and announcing that the subject would be concluded on the following sabbath he summarily brought the english service to a close and dismissed the congregation with a brief prayer two verses of a psalm and the benediction when mamie realized that the service was really over she felt as if she had been in church for a week after the benediction the congregation passed out into the churchyard and disposed themselves in groups about the gate and along the fences discussing the sermon and making brief inquiries as to the weal and ill of the members of their families mrs murray leaving hughie and mamie to wander at will passed from group to group welcomed by all with equal respect and affection young men and old men women and girls alike were glad to get her word to-day however the young men were not at first to be seen but mrs murray knew them well enough to suspect that they would be found at the back of the church so she passed slowly around the church greeting the people as she went and upon turning the corner she saw a crowd under the big maple the rendezvous for the younger portion of the congregation before church went in in the centre of the group stood ranald and don with murdy don's eldest brother a huge good-natured man beside them and peter ruach with his cousin alec and others of the clan ranald was standing pale and silent 
with his head thrown back, as his manner was when in passion. The talk was mainly between Alec and Murdy, the others crowding eagerly about and putting in a word as they could. Murdy was reasoning good-humouredly, Alec replying fiercely. It was good enough for him, Mrs. Murray heard Don interject in a triumphant tone to Murdy, but Murdy shut him off sternly. Whisht, Don, you are not talking just now. Don was about to reply when he caught sight of Mrs. Murray. Here's the minister's wife, he said in a low tone, and at once the group parted in shamefaced confusion. But Murdy kept his face unmoved, and as Mrs. Murray drew slowly near, said, in a quiet voice of easy good humor, to Alec, who was standing with a face like that of a detected criminal, "'Well, we will see about it to-morrow night, Alec, at the post-office.' And he faced about to meet Mrs. Murray with an easy smile, while Alec turned away. But Mrs. Murray was not deceived, and she went straight to the point. Murdy, she said quietly, when she had answered his greeting, will you just come with me a little? I want to ask you about something. And Murdy walked away with her, followed by the winks and nods of the others. What she said, Murdy never told, but he came back to them more determined upon peace than ever. The difficulty lay not with the good-natured Peter, who was ready enough to settle with Ranald, but with the fiery Alec, who represented the non-respectable section of the clan Macrae, who lived south of the sixteenth and had a reputation for wildness. Fighting was their glory, and no one cared to enter upon a feud with any one of them. Murdy had interfered on Ranald's behalf, chiefly because he was Don's friend, but also because he was unwilling that Ranald should be involved in a quarrel with the Macrae's which he knew would be a serious affair for him. But now his strongest reason for desiring peace was that he had pledged himself to the minister's wife to bring it about in some way or other. So he took Peter off by himself and, without much difficulty, persuaded him to act the magnanimous part and drop the quarrel. With Ranald he had a harder task. That young man was prepared to see his quarrel through at whatever consequences to himself. He knew the Macrae's and knew well their reputation, but that only made it more impossible for him to retreat. But Murdy knew better than to argue with him, so he turned away from him with an indifferent air, saying, Oh, very well, Peter is willing to let it drop. You can do as you please, only I know the minister's wife expects you to make it up. "'What did she say to you, then?' asked Ranald fiercely. "'She said a number of things that you don't need to know, but she said this whatever. He will make it up for my sake, I know.' Ranald stood a moment, silent, then said, suddenly, "'I will, too.' And walking straight over to Peter, he offered his hand, saying, "'I was too quick, Peter, and I am willing to take as much as I gave. You can go on.' But Peter was far too soft-hearted to accept that invitation, and, seizing Ranald's hand, said heartily, Never mind, Ranald, it was my own fault. We will just say nothing more about it. There is the singing, boys, said Murdy. Come away, let us go in. He was all the more anxious to get the boys into the church when he saw Alec making toward them. 
He hurried Peter in before him, well pleased with himself and his success as peacemaker, but especially delighted that he could now turn his face toward the minister's pew without shame. And as he took his place in the back seat with Peter Ruach beside him, the glance of pride and gratitude that flashed across the congregation to him from the gray-brown eyes made Murdy feel more than ever pleased at what he had been able to do. But he was somewhat disturbed to notice that neither Ranald nor Don nor Alec had followed him into the church, and he waited uneasily for their coming. In the meantime, Straight Rory was winding his sinuous way through Coles Hill, the Gaelic rhythm of the psalm allowing of quavers and turns impossible in the English. In the pause following the second verse, Murdy was startled at the sound of angry voices from without. More than Murdy heard that sound. As Murdy glanced toward the pulpit, he saw that the minister had risen and was listening intently. Behold, the sparrow findeth out, chanted the precentor. You are a liar. The words in Alec's fiery voice outside fell distinctly upon Murdy's ear, though few in the congregation seemed to have heard. But while Murdy was making up his mind to slip out, the minister was before him. Quickly he stepped down the pulpit stairs, psalm-book in hand, and, singing as he went, walked quietly to the back door, and leaving his book on the window-sill, passed out. The singing went calmly on, for the congregation were never surprised at anything their minister did. The next verse was nearly through when the door opened, and in came Don, followed by Alec, looking somewhat disheveled and shaken up, and two or three more. In a few moments the minister came in, took his psalm-book from the window-sill, and, striking up with the congregation, Blessed is the man whose strength thou art, marched up to the pulpit again, with only an added flash in his blue eyes and a little more triumphant swing to his coat-tails to indicate that anything had taken place. But Murdy looked in vain for Ranald to appear and waited, uncertain what to do. He had a wholesome fear of the minister, more especially in his present mood. Instinctively he turned toward the minister's pew, and, reading the look of anxious entreaty from the pale face there, he waited till the congregation rose for prayer, and then slipped out, and was seen no more in church that day. On the way home not a word was said about the disturbance, but after the evening worship, when the minister had gone to his study for a smoke, Hughie, who had heard the whole story from Don, told it to his mother and Mamie in his most graphic manner. It was not Ranald's fault, mother, he declared. You know Peter would not let him alone, and Ranald hit him in the nose and served him right, too. But they made it all up, and they were just going into the church again when that Alec McRae pulled Ranald back, and Ranald did not want to fight at all, but he called Ranald a liar, and he could not help it but just hit him. Who hit who? said Mamie. You're not making it very clear, Hughie. Why, Ranald, of course, hit Alec and knocked him over, too, said Hughie, with much satisfaction. And then Alec, he is an awful fighter, you know, jumped on Ranald and was pounding him just awful, the great brute. When out came Papa, he stepped up and caught Alec by the neck and shook him just like a baby, saying all the time, Would ye? I will teach you to fight on the Sabbath day. Here, in with you, every one of you. And he threw him nearly into the door, 
and then they all skedaddled into the church i tell you don said they were pretty badly scared too but don did not know what papa did to ranald and he did not know where ranald went but he's pretty badly hurted i am sure that great big alec mcrae is old enough to be his father wasn't it mean of him mother poor hughie was almost in tears and his mother who sat listening too eagerly to correct her little boy's ethics or grammar was as nearly overcome as he she wished she knew where ranald was he had not appeared at the evening bible class and murdy had reported that he could not find him anywhere she put hughie to bed and then saw mamie to her room but mamie was very unwilling to go to bed oh auntie she whispered as her aunt kissed her good-night i cannot go to sleep and then after a pause she said shyly do you think he is badly hurt then the minister's wife looking keenly into the girl's face made light of ranald's misfortune oh he will be all right she said as far as his hurt is concerned that is the least part of his trouble you need not worry about that good night my dear and mamie relieved by her aunt's tone said good night with her heart at rest then mrs murray went into the study determined to find out what had passed between her husband and ranald she found him lying on his couch luxuriating in the satisfaction of a good day's work behind him and his first pipe nearly done she at once ventured upon the thing that lay heavy upon her heart she began by telling all she knew of the trouble from its beginning in the church and then waited for her husband's story for some moments he lay silently smoking ah oh, well he said at length knocking out his pipe perhaps i was a little severe with the lad he may not have been so much to blame oh papa what did you do said his wife in an anxious voice well said the minister hesitating i found that the young rascal had struck alec mcrae first and a very bad blow it was so i administered a pretty severe rebuke and sent him home oh what a shame cried his wife in indignant tears it was far more the fault of peter and alec and the rest poor ranald now my dear said the minister you need not fear for ranald i do not suppose he cares much besides his face was not fit to be seen so i sent him home well it-yes burst in his wife great brutal fellow to strike a boy like that boy said her husband well he may be but not many men would dare to face him then he added i wish i had known i fear i spoke perhaps the boy may feel unjustly treated he is as proud as lucifer oh papa said his wife what did you say nothing but what was true i just told him that a boy who would break the lord's day by fighting and in the very shadow of the lord's house when christian people were worshipping god was acting like a savage and was not fit for the company of decent folk to this his wife made no reply but went out of the study leaving the minister feeling very uncomfortable indeed but by the end of the second pipe he began to feel that after all ranald had got no more than was good for him and that he would be none the worse of it in which comforting conviction he went to rest and soon fell into the sleep which is supposed to be the right of the just not so his wife wearied though she was with the long day its excitements and its toils sleep would not come 
anxious thoughts about the lad she had come to love as if he were her own son or brother kept crowding in upon her the vision of his fierce dark stormy face held her eyes awake and at length drew her from her bed she went into the study and fell upon her knees the burden had grown too heavy for her to bear alone she would share it with him who knew what it meant to bear the sorrows and the sins of others as she rose she heard fido bark and whine in the yard below and going to the window she saw a man standing at the back door and fido fawning upon him startled she was about to waken her husband when the man turned his face so that the moonlight fell upon it and she saw ranald hastily she threw on her dressing-gown put on her warm bedroom slippers and cloak ran down to the door and in another moment was standing before him holding him by the shoulders ranald she cried breathlessly what is it i am going away he said simply and i was just passing by and he could not go on oh ranald she cried i am glad you came this way now tell me where you are going the boy looked at her as if she had started a new idea in his mind and then said i do not know and what are you going to do ranald work there is plenty to do no fear of that but your father ranald the boy was silent for a little and then said he will soon be well and he will not be needing me and he said i could go his voice broke with the remembrance of the parting with his father and why are you going ranald she said looking into his eyes again the boy stood silent why do you go away from your home and your father and and all of us who love you indeed there is no one he replied bitterly and i am not for decent people i am not for decent people i know that well enough there is no one that will care much no one ranald she asked sadly i thought she paused looking steadily into his face suddenly the boy turned to her and putting out both his hands burst forth his voice coming in dry sobs oh yes yes i do believe you i do believe you and that is why i came this way i wanted to see your door again before i went oh i will never forget you never never and i am glad i am seeing you for now you will know how much the boy was unable to proceed his sobs were shaking his whole frame and to his shy highland scotch nature words of love and admiration were not easy you will not be sending me back home again he pleaded anticipating her indeed i cannot stay in this place after to-day but the minister's wife kept her eyes steadily upon his face without a word trying in vain to find her voice and the right words to say she had no need of words for in her face pale wet with her flowing tears and illumined with her gray-brown eyes ranald read her heart oh he cried again you are wanting me to stay and i will be ashamed before them all and the minister too i cannot stay i cannot stay and i cannot let you go ranald my boy she said commanding her voice to speech i want you to be a brave man i don't want you to be afraid of them 
"'Afraid of them?' said the boy in scornful surprise. "'Not if they were twice as more and twice as big.' Mrs. Murray saw her advantage and followed it up. "'And the minister did not know the whole truth, Ranald, and he was sorry he spoke to you as he did.' "'Did he say that?' said Ranald in surprise. It was to him, as to anyone in that community, a terrible thing to fall under the displeasure of the minister and to be disgraced in his eyes. Yes, indeed, Ranald, and he would be sorry if you should go away. I am sure he would blame himself. This was quite a new idea to the boy. That the minister should think himself to be in the wrong was hardly credible. And how glad we would be, she continued earnestly, to see you prove yourself a man before them all. Ranald shook his head. I would rather go away. Perhaps, but it's braver to stay and to do your work like a man. And then, allowing him no time for words, she pictured to him the selfish, cowardly part the man plays, who marches bravely enough in the front ranks until the battle begins, but who shrinks back and seeks an easy place when the fight comes on, till his face fell before her in shame. And then she showed him what she would like him to do, and what she would like him to be in patience and in courage, till he stood once more erect and steady. Now, Ranald, she said, noting the effect of her words upon him, what is it to be? I will go back he said simply, and turning with a single word of farewell, he sprang over the fence and disappeared in the woods. The minister's wife stood looking the way he went long after he had passed out of sight, and then, lifting her eyes to the radiant sky with its shining lights, he made the stars also, she whispered, and went up to her bed and laid her down and slept in peace. Her Sabbath day's work was done. End of chapter 9